The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome back to the Tuesday edition of Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one and the only. What the hell did you just uh, jump for? thingy, and I just, I just, like. It really looked like somebody just electric shocked <laughs> no, you. No, because it, it like, the cool. side of my thing, and it rubbed against my teeth, and it kind of, like. Right across from me is the one, the only, the electrocuted. Damn, Underwood. Say hi, damn. Hi, everybody. So just a little. FYI to our listeners, today in studio we have my BFF, Ghost, the dog, but apparently my dog and my son's dog, Angel, who is a coonhound, doesn't like Ghost right now. So if you hear growling and barking, we're trying to keep them under control, but we can't put her outside because she's like tearing down my fucking door. Ghost is just all chill like I don't give a shit. Yeah, as long as she doesn't like... Show any aggression, he'll be fine. All right, so you gave me three names today. Gave you three names: Coral, Henley, and Brooks. Coral, Henley, and Brooks. And it sounds like that sounds Coral like Coral is actually known as the Candyman. Well, killer as well. All three of these names together make it sound like it's uh like it's a classic rock rock band like uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Oh yeah, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> um, now. Dean Arnold Coral was considered the behind was considered um, to be behind a series of crimes that became internationally known as the Houston Mass Murders. Okay, I um, hang on. Okay, anyways, um, he along with two teen accomplices, David Owen Brooks and Elmer Wayne Henley. were responsible for abducting, raping, torturing, and murdering a minimum of 28 boys and men from 1970 to 1973. Are we on a gay kick lately? I'm just curious, because every time you bring something up, it's usually like, and he molested little boys. It's never like, they molested little girls anymore. You're giving me, you're basically, you're giving me priests. That's what you're giving me. You give me, uh, uh, did you raid the Catholic Church for this info? What happened? No, I did not raid the Catholic Church for this info. Hypothetically speaking, you know, if priests really touched altar boys, hypothetically, please don't sue me if that happened. To you. (laughs) To you. Or if you're a priest. So the Houston mass murders may have gone unsolved if it weren't for one pivotal event um, between Coral and Henley. I'll touch on this event a little later, but there may be some controversy surrounding it to this day. Um, once the authorities became aware of the murders, the world considered it the, quote, worst example of serial murder in U.S. history. Nice. What years are these? 70 to 73. Oh, wow. So yeah. the year that I was born. Yeah. In 73, yeah. Yeah. Um. Let's see here. Once Coral selected his victims, he was able to get them to comply by offering to party with them or give them a ride to one of the several homes he was known to live in from during the three-year period. Once he had them in his vehicle, he would have them res- he would restrain them somehow. This Coral did by force or deception. Um, when Coral was ready to dispatch a victim, he would either strangle them to death or shoot them with a twenty-two caliber pistol. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And the three men worked together to bury their victims in multiple locations. Around- it's all about teamwork. <laughs> yeah. 
around 17 of them were buried under the floorboards or what the dirt of a boat shed that they rented. Um, there was the woodland area in the vicinity of Lake Sam Rayburn. And um, their four victims were buried there. And then one of the victims was found buried along a beach somewhere in Jefferson County. Finally, a minimum of six victims were found buried along another beach. Uh, this one on the Bolivar Peninsula. So, High Island Beach. Okay, but this is like California. Oh, you Texas. said Houston. Te- I'm, I'm, Texas. I'm eating spaghetti with hot sauce in it right now. And what does that have so, to do with your ears? Uh, my brain's kind of cooking and it's on fire. So, I love ghost peppers. Sorry, I have to find my ibuprofen. Okay. Um, doo, doo, doo. Upon their arrest, Brooks and Henley wound up confessing to aiding Coral in his crimes. Residents in the era began calling Coral the Candyman and the Pied Piper. Um, he earned these names because uh, the Coral family once owned a candy factory in the Houston Heights area. And he was well known to give uh, the children around that area uh Free candy on occasion. That's a great way to get him to the back of your van if you own the whole factory. I bet you he got a lot of little girls. Well, no, he's after boys, so. He was after boys. A lot of little boys in his van. Yeah. I'm telling you. Okay, so um, Dean Arnold Coral was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana on Christmas Eve, 1939. Oh, present. I know. He was the first of two sons born to parents Arnold Edwin Coral and Mary Emma Robinson. Arnold was known to be a strict disciplinarian when it came to his children. On the flip side, Mary was known to be overly protective of them. Um. With the different parenting styles, it shouldn't come as a surprise. The two often argued during their marriage. A marriage that ended in divorce sometime in 1946, approximately four years after Coral's brother, Stanley Wayne, was born. However, there there didn't seem to be a whole lot of animosity that often accompanies a divorce. Uh, Mary wound up selling the family home in Indiana before she moved the boys into a trailer home located in Memphis, Tennessee, because after the divorce, Arnold was drafted to serve in the United States Air Force, and since he was stationed in Memphis, she wanted his sons to have as much contact with him as possible. Well, and here's the thing, and this is just for our listeners as well, from what I remember from psychology classes and basic common sense, you can't have two very different... um, parenting styles in the same household. You can't have somebody who's a strict disciplinarian and then the other one being overly protective because it 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 negates itself. It cancels it itself out. I found that with my mom raising my son. Yeah, it, it, that's it's fucking ludicrous. It's fucking absolutely stupid. You need to come to a common ground. I'm not saying that both parents have to be strict disciplinarians or straight no. coddle your kids, but a nice a nice middle ground. Yeah. You know, where things are agreed on and talked about as parents. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't matter if you're married or not. You know, yeah. whether you're living together with, with, with your baby's daddy or your baby's mama or not, there should be a common ground. Because yes. if not, kids will work parents against each other. Oh, yeah, totally. My son works to this day. He's 20-some years old, works me and my mom against each other. Yeah, and so any kind of a disciplinary action to teach them a new skill or anything like that, it's all for naught because mm-hmm. it's always a battle. Yeah. So remember that, motherfuckers, and put that shit into practice. Because some of you, and you know who you are. 
Yeah, yeah, you. Yeah, the exactly. one in the beanbag chair with the Cheetos right yeah, now. It's exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> the one who just now looked at the goddamn at your phone or wherever you're getting this podcast from. He can't be talking about me and my kids. Yeah, you. Listen up, dickhead. Put that shit into practice because I'm Come pretty guzzler. sure your fucking little crotch goblin is going to be out there causing hate and discontent and tearing apart damn stories. Knock it the fuck off. Communicate. Dis- Communicate. And follow through. Oh, totally. You totally need to follow through on that Totally. Shit. Don't tell them you're going to, like, punish them and then don't. Yeah. Um, anyway, continue. Yeah. Everyone who knew Coral when he was growing up considered him a shy yet serious child. His shyness is probably what hindered him from socializing with other children in school or around his neighborhood. Despite this, when it came to the well-being of others, he would often show his concern. So he had a lot of compassion growing up. Um, when Coral was seven years old, he suffered from a case of rheumatic fever, which is an inflammatory disease that affects the heart, joints, brain, and skin. Oh, okay. Yeah, this illness went undiagnosed until 1950 when the doctors discovered he had a heart murmur. After receiving the diagnosis, the doctor ordered the young boy not to participate in the school's physical education classes anymore. Um, sometime prior to 1950, Mary and Arnold were able to work things out. Um, in 1950, they got remarried and moved the family to Pasadena, Texas, um, which is a so- small suburb of Houston. However, this time the marriage only lasted for approximately three years um, because they were once again divorced in 1953. When the divorce was final, Mary had sole custody, even so she and Arnold had an amicable split so he had regular contact and visits with his sons again. and that's super important yeah. man you got to be able to whether your parents are together or not or you're you know you're together with your parent the, the other parent yeah. of your child you, you need to be able to see your fucking kids man yeah make that effort right well and i mean my ex-husband unfortunately didn't make any effort you know, because I always said, I'll take him all the way to Clockmas to see you. I don't care. He needs his father, but then his father up and left. So, so one of my children, I'm not going to mention who it is. Um, I told that child's mom, who's living up in Renton, I said, hey, you need to spend time with this child. And she said, no, well, I don't want to come all the way down. I said, fine, meet me halfway. Meet me in like Shahela's. No, I can't do that. But I tell you what, I'll drive you. All, I'll drive him all the way up there. You spend the day, and I'll drive him back, and I'll just go p- piss around for the day. No, I don't have time to do that either. Are you kidding? Yeah, she didn't come back into that child's life until he was in his teens. Wow. Yeah, and even then, it was just just. Would you say self-serving? Yeah, it was more self-serving than self-serving. She had a mission. It was sad because I had high hopes that she that she had kind of. Seeing the errors of her ways and yeah. and was going to be, but yeah, it's it's totally unfair to the kid. Way fucking totally unfair. unfair. So Mary eventually began a relationship with a guy by the name of Jake West. She married the traveling clock salesman, and all four of them moved to Vider, Texas. That's where Joyce Janine West, Carl's half sister, was born. Once Joyce was born, Mary and Jake decided to open a small, family-run candy company that they started in their garage. Um, Almost as soon as his mom and stepdad opened their business, Coral worked both day and night when he wasn't in school. He and Stanley were both responsible for operating the candy-making machines, as well as packing the products. Sorry. Almost as soon as his mom... 
Oh, I already said that. Um, Jake, then after, because um, Coral and Stanley were um, responsible for operating the candy making machines as well as packing all the products. Okay. Now, Did Jake. Did they make fudge? No, I think they were like pecan clusters or something like that. Uh, well, Turtles. Just, just asking if they made fudge and they would be fudge packers. I hate you. <laughs> I do hate you. <laughs> um, no, you don't. Yes, I do. <laughs> okay, Jake then, uh, the boy's stepdad, would uh, then take the packaged candy around with him on his sales route to sell it to the people he pitched his clocks to because he was a traveling clock salesman. Um, the sales route he had often considered of the sales route he had often consisted of him traveling back and forth to Houston all the time. Um, Coral was enrolled at Vidor High School from 1954 to 1958. During that four-year period, his teachers considered him to be a well-behaved individual whose grades were satisfactory. Okay, cool. Yeah, his peers considered him to be a loner. However, he did date girls on occasion. They do remember that the majority of his interest was playing the trombone in the school's brass band. I bet you he liked to play the rusty trombone. <laughs> and he liked to get trombone. You know, there's going to be some other issues later that I am not going to want to say to you. <laughs> I can't help it. I'm like a big child. You are. I mean... Just to give our listeners perspective, you and I went to Home Depot to get a new stopper for your toilet. And a shower head. We were looking no, for we, we oh, were no, looking at them, but we didn't I get it. That, yeah. yeah. And so it got to a point, it's like, no matter what I said, you made it dirty. No, I just interpreted it differently than what you had presented it yeah well i said do you need one of those hand jobby thingies and you said i could always use a hand job and i'm like that's not what i meant <laughs> well that's what you said and i'm looking around going why do you see like a blonde with big tits what's happening no. with that okay you know or an old lady you know grandma can do it little that's more of like a little wrinkly rusty hand job but that's all right well, you know <laughs> we were near the lubricant aisle my son told me one time that he sees old lady snatch, so. Oh, lucky I bastard! Said, I said Scott would be jealous. <laughs> I'm gonna go to work where he works. Damn it! <laughs> I bet you I can get lots of dates there. <laughs> Probably. And they have dementia. That's even better. Yeah, because they there's his facility is known for their. Oh shit! I didn't know yeah. that. I was just fucking around. No. Yeah. <laughs> That's the other unit. side. The long term care is the memory enhancement unit. Now I just feel like an asshole. That just took my joke to a whole new. Different level, huh? God damn. Okay, okay. No, continue on because now Anyways, I feel like a dick. Now, in the summer of 1958, Coral graduated with his class from Vider High School. It wasn't long after graduation when the family moved again, this time to an area just outside of Houston to the north. The move was made so that the family business could be run closer to the city as that was where Jake was able to sell the most products. There... The family opened a small shop and named it after their candy brand name, Pecan Prince. Pecan. 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 I'm a pecan princess. Yeah, you you know about Georgia pecans, don't you? Yeah. Okay. Is it pecan or? It's a pecan. Pecan. Yeah. I, I mean, I know it's different no matter what. pecan is something that you use, you know, when you got a bathroom. <laughs> Women use a pecan. <laughs> yeah. I think it was, um, what's his name? 
um, Carter, Jimmy Carter. Yep, he's from Georgia. Yeah, he goes, it's a pecan. Mm-hmm. And he's like, pecan. <laughs> pecan. But, um, let's see. Two years later, in 1960, Coral's grandfather died. So his mother asked him to move back to Indiana to live with his newly widowed grandmother. While he was living there, he developed a very close relationship with one of the local girls. Despite their closeness, when she proposed to him in 1962, he would reject her offer. She proposed to him. God damn. Well, that usually didn't happen back then. That's fucked up, man. Because I've never had a girl get down on one knee for me and go, Scotty, you are the fat, bald bastard of my dreams. Will you marry me? I look at her down there, and I go, Cindy Lou, you look awful pretty today with your hair in a big old beehive. And since you are my first cousin, of course I'll marry you. You're dumb. <laughs> okay. She's um, sexy. <laughs> shut up. Shortly after that, Coral moved back to Houston in order to help run the family business, which was now located in the Houston Heights area. He eventually made the the apartment located above the shop his. Um, By 1963, Mary and Jake were divorced, and she chose to open her own candy business, and she named it Coral Candy Company. Um, She hired Coral to be the vice president of the new business, while Stanley was hired as the secretary treasurer. After giving her sons their new positions in the company, Mary received a complaint from one of the teenage boys who worked for her. The boy said that Coral had had approached him and made some unwarranted sexual advances. As a result, she fired the boy who lodged the complaint. He offered him candy. That's perfectly acceptable. It says in the rule book right here. Same, same. Same, same. That's same, same. Same, same. He, uh, he works for a candy company, offered candy, and all this little kid had to say was, no, mister, you're not my priest, and walk away, but no. Wants to start trouble. Not same, same. Not same, same. That says no, no. Not no, no. You're so dumb. Just because he's not your priest. Damn. Well, apparently, okay. only priest can touch his pee-pee. Shut up. On August 10th, 1964, Coral was drafted by the United States Army and attended basic training in Fort Polk, Louisiana. Yeah. 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 He would um, later be sent to Fort Benning, Georgia. Yep, I know right where he trained as a radio repairman. He would eventually be stationed out of Fort Hood, Texas for his permanent assignment. Um, A look at Coral's official military records shows that he completed his service without a blemish on it. Yeah, he was like an upstanding uh, soldier. Um, despite the well-maintained record, it said that he never liked serving with the military. He wound up applying for what's called a hardship discharge, claiming that he was needed back home to help with the family business. After 10 months of service, the army granted his request. And on June 11th, 1965, he received an honorable discharge. So, you know, I guess the military is not for everybody, huh? According to some reports, after Coral was discharged from the Army, he confided to some of his close friends some personal information. It said that he told them it was while he was serving in the Army that he became aware of his homosexuality. And he loved rubbing butter on his nipples. As a matter of fact, the reports indicate that's when he had his first homosexual experience. Well, there you go. You're in there with a bunch of dudes. You're looking at him going, oh, my God, you are hung like a buffalo. It could happen. Okay. I don't fault him. 
Okay. Other reports indicate that Coral's friends noticed that he would have a slight change in his behavior when he was in the presence of teenage boys. These changes began after he had been discharged from the Army and returned to the Houston area. This is apparently when they began to think he may have homosexual tendencies. So, But think about the time, too, because gays weren't readily accepted back then. It was illegal. It was still illegal back then? Yeah, it was illegal until 1973, 4. Holy shit. Yeah. That's messed up, man. Yeah. But at least we progressed, and now it's not illegal to, you know, if you're a dude and you want to, you know, blow another dude. Because my thing is, if that's your thing, fine. Fucking just let it be. Yeah. Just, give two shits. You know. You know? It's just not, don't do it in the middle of the road. Well, <laughs> that, and I don't do it in my living room. I just don't want to see it personally. But, you know, if that's your dealio, that's your dealio. I don't fucking give a shit. Have you ever had one of your friends have sex in the middle of your living room? Yes, in college. Oh, not yeah. Brandon? No, it wasn't my buddy Brandon. I give him shit all the time. <laughs> so when Coral was honorably discharged from service, he immediately returned to Houston Heights to live. He quickly began working for the Coral Candy Company in the vice president position again. And as Jake had retained his ownership in Pecan Prince, um... After he and Mary were divorced, there was quite a lot of competition between both companies. As a result, there was an increase in demand for the candy that his family sold. In order to satisfy that increase, Coral chose to devote most of his time to working long hours at the shop. He, I mean, he had an excellent uh, work ethic. Um, Sometime in 1965, the Coral Candy Company moved their business to a shop on 22nd Street. In this new location, Helms Elementary School was located right across the street. It didn't take Coral long to start giving the local school children free candy, especially if they were teenage boys. This is how he earned both of his nicknames. Coral Candy Company was doing well enough to hire a small workforce. It didn't take Coral long to bring, begin flirting with quite a few of the young teen boys who worked for him. Reports even suggest that he chose to place a pool table in the back of the factory, and it was a place where some of the employees as well as youth in the area were known to hang out. Um, yeah. Um, let's see here. Then Coral becomes friends with a guy by the name of David Owen Brooks. Well, I can't say guy. I have to say child. Sometime in 1967, Coral became friends with a 12-year-old boy named David Owen Brooks. When they met, the, I'm, I'm going to hate saying something here in about two minutes. Um, when they met, Brooks was only in the sixth grade, and he was one of the many young children that received candy from the older man. They became close companions when Brooks began to hang out with Coral and other boys who hung out in the back of the factory. Coral often went on frequent trips to the beaches in South Texas, and he often took various teenagers along with him. See, and this is what gets me. Everybody in that era goes, I never thought that would happen. To, how'd this happen to my child? You're letting your kid go on vacations with a grown-ass fucking man, and I don't care if he sells fucking candy or dildos. That's inappropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a bunch of shit that happens during this whole spree, that three-year spree, that I'm like, what the fuck, dude? Um, Perfectly normal. But then it was like, you have to remember it was the early 70s. I suppose. Yeah. So, um, let's see. Brooks soon became one of Coral's regular companions on these trips. He later said that he liked to hang out with Coral because of the way the man treated him. Coral was a 
Apparently, the first adult male who didn't make fun of the fact that Brooks was a geeky-looking guy with glasses. You know, so... That's uh, flag number one. Yeah. Yeah. Luring them in. Yeah. Give them that bolster well, of self-confidence. We're going to be talking about it again on Friday's episode with the rest of Wesley Allen Dodd. Oh, sweet. Yeah, because, you know, he groomed his victims. But that's technically what this dude here is doing. You find somebody with low self-esteem. Well, actually, he's grooming his accomplices right now. Oh, that's right. You said it was Brooks. <laughs> yeah. Fabulous. Yeah, so continue. Brooks said that anytime he was short on money, all he had to do was go to Coral, and the man would give him the cash he needed. Eventually, he began to consider Coral to be a father figure in his life. Beginning sometime in the last year of the 60s, after some convincing on would Coral's part. Would it be 69? Yes. The two men developed, the two of them developed a sexual relationship in 1969. Go figure. According to Brooks, Coral often gave him money or other gifts in exchange for allowing the man to perform fellatio on him. Yeah, so Coral wanted to, you know, get a little nom nom going on. And so he would pay the kid. Just remember, he was a sugar daddy. Remember, some people don't uh, suck cock for pleasure, they do it purely for the taste of it. I love that disgusted look. Continue. Well, little side note. I'd love to do that. <laughs> oh, now I'm grossed out. Great. Yep. Thanks. Yep. Um, get on it. Brooks came from a broken home with his father living in Houston and his mother living in Beaumont, approximately 85 miles east of Houston city limits. In 1970, 15-year-old Brooks was attending Waltrip High School when he decided to drop out. When that happened, he went to live with his mother in Beaumont. Despite that, he often went back to Houston to visit his father. And on those trips, he always made a point to visit Coral, even staying at the older man's apartment if he wanted to. Because nobody said that was inappropriate. Yeah. That's stupid. Jesus, protect your kids, you dumbasses. Yeah. Brooks didn't live with his mother for long. Before the end of the year, he had moved back to Houston to live with his father. However, according to his later confession, Brooks said that it was around this time that he had begun to think of Coral's apartment as his home away from home. Um, It was by this time that Mary, Coral's mother, had taken his half-sister Joyce and moved to Colorado. She had made the decision to move after she became divorced for the third time. Um, And the Coral Candy Company closed their doors in June of 1968. After her Wait a move, only three times. Yeah, amateur. I know. After her move, she and Coral spoke frequently on the phone. However, she never saw him again. Um, when the candy company closed down, Coral got a job working as an electrician for Houston Lighting and Power Company. Um, his job consisted of him testing electrical relay systems. He was employed with HLNP until the day of the event that brought his crimes to the attention of the authorities. Authorities. You will respect my authority. Yeah. Okay. From 1970 to 1973, Coral was known to have murdered at least 28 victims. All of his chosen victims were young boys and men ranging from age 13 to 20. However, the majority of the victims were young boys in their mid-teens. By that time, Houston Heights was considered a low-income neighborhood just northwest of the downtown Houston area. And that's where the bulk of the young men Coral victimized were abducted from. Um, For the majority of the abductions, Coral either had the help of Brooks or his other accomplice, Elmer Henley. 
Um, sometimes that is such a southern name. <laughs> That's so country and ghetto. <laughs> it is. Sometimes both of the teenagers would assist Coral in this task. It was later revealed that quite a few of the victims were known acquaintances of at least one, if not both, of Coral's sidekicks. Because, you know, they were high school. But so you just went to lure them in. Yeah. I mean, who are you more likely to go with? A stranger or someone that you know? Correct, Mundo. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Um, the ones who weren't, with the exception of two, were the victims Coral himself became acquainted with prior to abducting them. Uh, the two exceptions were the two victims, <coughs> Billy Balk, Balk, B-A-U-L-C-H, and Gregory Malley Winkle. Shut up. Who had once worked for Coral at the Coral Candy Company. Um, now, keep remember Billy's name. When Coral abducted the young victims, he would usually find a way to lure them into one of three vehicles. One vehicle was his 1969 Chevy Corvette that Coral had bought in 1971 nice. from Brooks. I know, right? Damn, the man. The other two vehicles were owned by Coral himself. He had a Plymouth GTX, and he had the mandatory Chomo special 40 Conaline van. Of course, of course. That's required. It says so yeah. in the rule book. It's the same, same. Same, same. Yes, yes. Um, usually, all Coral had to do was offer to party with the young boy or give him a ride somewhere. <laughs> then once the victim was inside the vehicle, Coral would just take them back to his place. Um, once Coral had his victim at his house, he would sometimes give them either drugs or alcohol. They would partake partake in one or both until they were so intoxicated they passed out or he was able to trick them into putting on a pair of handcuffs. If neither of those two things happened, he would just grab them by force and put the handcuffs on himself. It's kind of like Kraft, Randy Kraft. That's that's yeah. Randy Kraft, but in Texas. Mm-hmm. Once the victim was restrained, Coral and his two accomplices would strip them of their clothes after they were naked. Sometimes they were tied down to either Coral's bed but more often they were secured to the torture board, which was just a plywood board with, like, restraints on it. I need one of those. Those. You need a torture board? Yes. Okay. Um, let's see. When the three had the victims secured in either place, they proceeded to beat, torture, and sexually assault each one, sometimes for a period of several days. God damn. Yeah. Um... Afterward, each victim met their demise by either being strangled or shot with a twenty-two. Um, when they were dead, Coral, Brooks, and Henley, or a combination of the three, would wrap them in some plastic sheeting that was then tied cl- closed before they were buried in one of the four dump sites. No sheet. No sheet. <laughs> you sheet me not? Sheet you not. <laughs> um... A boat ship. You know, and the funny part is, is I just said it, rambled it off, and didn't even realize what I was saying until I said it. I was like, hey, that, that makes sense. Um, Let's see here. Ah, fuck me running. Okay, there we go. Um, Let's see. Boat. Okay, um, one of the four dump sites. A boat shed they had rented, a beach along the Boulevard Peninsula near Lake Sam... Rayburn in a wooded area around where Coral's family had a lakeside cabin or along a beach in Jefferson County. Um, In a lot of situations, Coral would force his abductee to call their parents on the telephone 
or write them a letter. This was done so the victim could explain why they were not around so their parents wouldn't become concerned and file a missing person report. After killing a victim, Carl always kept some sort of trophy from them. Usually it was a set of keys. Huh, okay. Yeah. Um, from the time Coral began his killing spree in 1970 through 1973, he frequently moved to different addresses around town. Until moving to Pasadena during the spring of 73, he always chose a new residence in or around Houston Heights area. During um, my hours of research into many different serial killers, this is actually common, the frequent moving. Pasadena, um, Texas is also the home of Gilly's Bar and Grill, which is where Mickey Gilly, the, classic, the country know. singer, set up a bar. I know. If you don't know who Mickey Gilly is, you're just too, list- you're too young to be listening to this. Go change your damn diapers. Sit down. Sit down, boy. I, I bet you that half of our listeners are sitting there going, what a fucking asshole. Jesus Christ. I'm just kidding. Jesus Christ. Google him. He's awesome. He is freaking awesome. And much like the gays, if you could take a dick, you could take a joke. So, there you go. You may continue. You just look at me with so much disdain. It's not disdain. It's just bewilderment. <laughs> um, he had become familiar. Okay, Um, He had become familiar with the area And it was his preferred hunting grounds Um, So it's like He would hunt in Houston Heights And then dump outside That makes sense It actually makes sense Uh Good logistics is what that is Mm -hmm. I'm going to give it that Because like I said Most of the time I find good In people Yeah. Well he had a good work ethic That's what I was going to say He's got a great work ethic He's good at logistics Mm Mm-hmm. So, so far, I mean, no, he's a sick fuck, but he's got some redeeming qualities, not like Carl Hamoka. Yeah. The authorities think they have found the murdering trio's first known victim. He was Jeffrey Conan, an 18-year-old freshman in college. Jeffrey was murdered on September 25th, 1970. Prior to that, he was hitchhiking home to his parents' house in Houston with a fellow University of Texas student. The person the two students received a ride from dropped him off alone in Houston's uptown area on the corner of Westheimer and South Voss Roads. Um, it's believed that um, is where he encountered Coral, who more than likely offered him a ride home. If that's the case, it's obvious Jeffrey accepted his offer as he was never seen alive again. When Jeffrey vanished, Carl was living on Yorktown Street in an apartment. His apartment was very close to the Westminster Road. The Westheimer Road intersection, excuse me. Westheimer. Westheimer. Um, on August 10th, 1973, Brooks led the police to the location. I was two days old. You were. <laughs> yeah, I was two days old when this happened. All right. And cool. you were living in California, weren't you? No. Oh. Nope. nope. Anyway, continue. You were born in Cali. Oh, I guess I was. Huh? Yeah, no, you're right. Two days old. Yeah, a week before you're we still left. Yeah. in there. Duh. Drugs, man. Don't do drugs, boys and girls. I think that's the whole point yeah. of today is don't do drugs. Anyways, um, Brooks led the police to the location where Jeffrey's body was buried. His remains were dug up on High Island Beach in the Bolivar Peninsula. Forensics were able to determine that his cause of death was asphyxiation by manual strangulation. There was a cloth gag placed in his mouth at some point, either immediately preceding his death or post-mortem. Okay. I call that foreplay. 
So I, I don't know, know what do. their problem is. I know. You freaking tied a gag in my mouth earlier. That was just to get you to shut up. Because <laughs> you were going, raw speaking to me in your native tongue. And have enough coffee in me yet. I to you in my native tongue. <laughs> because you will never let me live it down. <laughs> That's fucking awesome. Okay. Um, Jeffrey's remains were discovered buried under a large boulder. When the authorities dug it up, they noticed that there was a layer of lime covering the plastic he was wrapped in. And tequila right next yeah. to him. Tequila and lime. <laughs> when they removed Jeffrey's body from the plastic sheeting, he was naked and had both of his hands and feet tied together with a section of nylon cord. This suggested that he had also been sexually violated. Um... Right around the same time that Jeffrey was murdered, Brooks says he walked in on Coral sexually assaulting two other teenage boys. And according to him, Coral had tied both of these boys up to his four-poster bed. And when Brooks caught him in the middle of the act, he was upset about what he had seen. Coral wanted to keep favor with the boy and ensure his silence, so he bought him the car, the Corvette. That's a smart move, man. Yeah, no shit, yo. I wish somebody would buy me a car. 1969 Corvette. <laughs> I just like the 69 itself. Shut up. Corvette. The, the Corvette. What were you th- Or even oh. a 69 Mustang. You are just so perverted over there. As soon as I say anything, you know what? This is just too much my virgin my virgin ears and mind. It's, God, some people. Continue. So Scott, lightning is going to strike, and I'm really close to you because you have not been a virgin since, I don't know, you were... <laughs> no way after that <laughs> way you never slept with your nanny or your babysitter nope never did that i didn't have hmm. sex until i was like 16 17 i think something like that i was, wow. I was older i didn't even i didn't even kiss a girl did, then you liked it i uh, found out two things during a halloween party number one i love beer and number two vagina is awesome <laughs> Awesome, awesome. Then I've been, I've been addicted to booze and, and vagina ever since. Yeah. So Brooks readily accepted the older man's offer, and that's when Coral went out and bought him the green Chevy Corvette. Green. Afterward, uh, Coral told Brooks that he had killed and d- disposed of the two boys himself. Apparently, it was quite the endeavor because that's when Coral told Brooks he needed his help. Um, for every boy Brooks brought to Coral's apartment, the older man would give him $200. With the cost of inflation, by 2020, that $200 was equivalent to 1330 $1,300 or $13,000? $1,300. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. Which is still a hefty chunk of change. <coughs> that is, man. But, now, I mean. Now we know what we can sell little boys for. I know. That's what I was boys. thinking. We can sell your son. He's old enough, but because I mean, he's got the boyish good looks still. Only if they charge by the pound. <laughs> Stop it! What? <laughs> no, I love my son. So I know it didn't take long for Brooks to comply with the request. On December thirteenth, nineteen seventy, he convinced James Glass and Danny Yates to go for a ride in his car with him. Uh, the two, where was I? Oh, ah, crap. <laughs> Hang on. Again? Yeah, I hit the wrong button and there we go. Mm. Now I got to find my place. Give me a moment. I'm so sorry. Every woman should know her place. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny myself. You are bad. Um, come on. There we go. Uh, okay. 
Let's see. Um, where was I? Oh. Taking a ride in the green Corvette? Yeah. Um, it didn't take long. <coughs> okay, yeah. The Glass and Danny Yates for riding his car with him. The two 14-year-old boys were from the Spring Beach area, and Brooks had picked them up from a religious rally they were attending in Houston Heights. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Brothers and sisters. Wait a minute. Was it the Catholics? The saves the Catholics, and they're, if it is, and they're pretty well used to, they could be used to being touched by priests. Hypothetically, you know what? Just continue because you look like you're going to murder me. I often think about murdering you. Um, let's see here. Uh, once they were in his car, he drove them straight to Coral's apartment on Yorktown Street. Apparently, Glass knew Brooks and had previously accompanied him to Coral's apartment before. Once Coral had the boys in his apartment, he was soon able to tie each of them up on opposite sides of the torture board. And when James and Danny were on the board, he set about raping them before he strangled them to death. Um, These two victims were buried in the boat shed Coral had just begun renting on November 17th of that same year. And when the authorities dug up their remains, they found an electrical cord with alligator clips secured to either end next to Danny's body. So he was obviously electrocuting somebody. Hypothetically speaking. Maybe he didn't do it at all. I think he was framed. <laughs> Continue. I have no words. Uh, let's see here. It was six short weeks later... On January 30th, 1971, when Coral and Brooks came across two brothers, Donald and Jerry Waldrop. Uh, The teenagers were walking back to their house from a friend's house. Apparently, their father had dropped them off there so that they could talk to their friend about joining a bowling league. And when the two found out their friend wasn't home after all, they decided just to walk home. Um, Coral and Brooks were able to convince Donald and Jerry to get into Coral's Chomo van. Um, before they were taken to Coral's new apartment located on Mangum Road. Um, once Brooks and Coral had Did their... Did you just say Mangum? Mangum. M-A-N-G-U-M. Oh, I thought you were talking about Mangum. I'm like, damn. Well, it could be Mangum. It's M-A-N-G-U-M. <laughs> hey, little boy. I got some Mangum for you. <laughs> Put it in your mouth. I swear. Um, let's see here. Okay. Once Brooks and Coral had their victims behind the closed doors of the apartment, they tied the two of them up. When the boys were raped and tortured before being strangled, after they were dead, the two predators buried them in the same boat shed where they had been... Buried them in the same boat shed with the other two boys that they had disposed of. Um, That same year, during a two-month period, between uh, March and May, three more victims were both abducted and murdered by Coral. Um, Where was I? All three of them were from Houston Heights. Coral and his accomplice, which was only Brooks at this point, buried all three of them in the back of the boat shed. Um, One out of the three was a young 15-year-old boy named Randall Harvey. The last time Randall's family saw him alive was during the afternoon hours on March 9th. He left his house riding his bike to to work in the Oak Forest area of Houston, and he had a part-time job there as an attendant at a gas station. Hmm. Yeah. 
at 15, that's, I mean, that's saying a lot. But not then right. we all worked back then. Yeah, that's true. I mean, true. I had a job at 14, so. It's not like today with these lazy-ass fucking kids. Entitled little bastards. Little sons of bitches. Back in my day. <laughs> we anyway. walked to school uphill in the snow. And then when we walked home, it was uphill in the snow again. That's right. Uphill both ways while fighting alligators and wild Indians. Yep. <laughs> You kids don't know what it's like with your fancy shoes. We didn't even have shoes. We had a stick and a piece of rope. That's it. Tied it around our feet. Tied around our feet. And that was good enough for us. Now you're all about Nikes. Yeah. Okay. At some point, um, Randall encountered either Coral or Brooks and was taken to the apartment on Mangum Road. Um, After being sexually assaulted and tortured for a period of time, Coral killed him by shooting him once in the head. Uh, the other two, 16-year-old Gregory Malley Winkle and 13-year-old David Hillegist, H-I-L-L-I-G-I-E-S-T, were together when they were abducted by one of the two predators on May 29, 1971. Once they were both at Coral's apartment, they were sexually assaulted together, more than likely tortured together, and definitely murdered together that same afternoon. Well, he's efficient, too. Yeah, pretty much. Just like the parents of Brooks and Coral's previous victims, the parents of the three young boys above frantically searched for their children. They printed up some missing persons posters, and local volunteers helped to distribute them around the neighborhoods. Each poster offered a reward for any information that led to where they could find the boys. One of those volunteers was a 15-year-old boy named Elmer Wayne Henley. Um, Hey, that sounds familiar. Henley and David Hildegist had been friends practically their whole lives. He dutifully set about hanging his sack of posters all around the Houston Heights neighborhoods. And Henley even did what he could to assure his friend's parents that their son would be home soon, that his disappearance wasn't anything serious. Um, After killing Gregory and David on May 29th, it seems that Coral and Brooks took the next two and a half months to cool off. Then, on August 17, 1971, the two of them ran into 17-year-old Reuben Watson Haney. Um, he was last seen in Houston, leaving the movie theater to walk home. Reuben and Brooks knew each other, so when Brooks pulled over to talk to him, it didn't take much convince the teenager to go to a party with him. Just the month before that, Coral had moved into a new apartment. This one was located on San Felipe Street. Um, the party was being held there and Reuben wasn't even hesitant as he climbed into Brooks' car. When he arrived at Coral's place, it wasn't long before he was restrained and at the very least sexually assaulted. When Coral was finished raping and torturing the young man, he strangled the kid to death before burying him in the bullshit. Um, the following month in September, Coral again moved to another apartment located in Houston Heights. Um, in Brooks' confession to the authorities later, he claims he helped Coral not only kidnap, but also murder two more young boys while Coral was living in this apartment. Brooks claims that one of these victims was murdered just before Wayne Henley came into the picture. As part of the confession, Brooks said that the young victim he and Coral killed right before Henley was added to their murderous fold was from Houston Heights. And Coral and Brooks kept him alive, raping and torturing him for about four days before they decided to kill him. God damn, that's fucked up. Yeah, I know. To this day, these two victims have never been identified. Um, sometime during the winter of 19, 
1871, Brooks decided to introduce Henley to Coral. It's believed that Brooks had taken Henley over to Coral's place, intending for him to be just another victim. However, Coral decided to switch things up a little bit by keeping Henley alive and making him another one of his accomplices. The older man offered to pay Henley the same way he paid Brooks. For any boy Henley managed to bring to Coral's apartment, he too would be paid $200. Damn. Yeah. To get Henley on board, Coral, Coral made up an elaborate lie. He told his new young accomplice that there was a white slavery ring based in Dallas that he was working with. That's, you know, a sex slavery. Well, it's got to be white slavery, man. Well, human trafficking. I don't know. That's what it said. Always about us white people, isn't it? When it comes to sex slaves, yeah. So you're saying that black people, with your one, you only got the one black friend, so you would probably wouldn't see it my way, but you're saying that black people aren't good enough to be sex slaves? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm just saying they no, wouldn't put up with your shit. Too late. It's too A late. A black person wouldn't put up with that shit. You are so prejudiced. It's oh not being prejudiced. They're Whatever. feisty fuckers. Whatever, whitey. Finish your thing. <laughs> Shut up. Um... With your one black friend. Later, Henley claims that he declined Coral's offer in the beginning, and every time the older man broached the subject with him, Henley ignored him. Apparently, this went on for a few months. Then in early 72, Henley's family was struggling financially, and their situation had become dire, almost to the point they were facing starvation and homelessness. So he decided to take Coral up on his offer in an effort to help support his family. Um... So I guess you'll do anything for family, huh? I won't. I know you won't. You don't I, like your family. I don't like my family. I don't like my mom's side of the family either. Well, there's a couple of cousins out there I tolerate. No, I, Christopher, got, love you. I got one. I love you too, Christopher. I've seen his pictures. You're mouthing at me to stop it. That's funny. Okay. Anyways. Oh, my God. I, I, I know that he's from a very conservative part. I'm not even saying he's gay or anything. I'm just saying, I saw your pictures, <laughs> and I might be a little bit gay for you. <laughs> yeah. Now now he's going to call I'm, you. He's going to go, what the fuck is up with your co-host? Yeah. Well, I told him he needs to come out when he's on his winter layoff season, because he's a truck driver out there. Mm. And so when he has his winter layoff, he should come out here for a visit. No, I don't want your whole family sitting there going, oh my God, Christopher, are you gay or something? No. It's a joke for fuck's sakes. Jesus God yeah. Christ. Because because Scott always talks about sleeping with men. <laughs> I do. Because, and I, I love doing that around my son because he looks at me like, oh, my God, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> I know. Well, and then it's like you go on and on about what you would do if you ever met Patrick Kearney. That's different. Like, I would so turn gay right now for Patrick. <laughs> like, give a pussy altogether? Ooh. I'll get back to you on that one. Okay. Because, <laughs> damn. Whoa. My ear popped. Um... Prior to Henley joining the operation in February 72, Coral once again moved to a new residence. This place was located at 925 Schuler Street. This was when Henley participated in his first abduction. However, Brooks claims that Henley started participating in the abductions before Cor Coral moved to the place on Schuler Street. This contradiction between Brooks and Henley brings into question the reliability of Henley's statements. Um... If we assume Henley is telling the truth, he helped abduct this victim sometime in February or perhaps early March from Houston Heights. According to Henley's statement to the authorities after he was arrested, 
Coral was on the corner of 11th and I don't know if it's Studwood or Studwood. S-T-U-D-E-W-O-O-D. That's my street. Studwood, baby. Yeah. When they picked up, quote, a boy. After his victim was in Coral's car, the pair told him they would smoke some pot with him if he went with them to Coral's place. Prior to the abduction, Coral and Henley had planned out the ruse they would later use. Once the young boy they had abducted was at the apartment, Henley grabbed a pair of handcuffs and secured his own hands behind his back. Unbeknownst to the boy, Henley had the key tucked into his back pocket, so when he was able to free himself, the kid was amazed. And then Henley managed to convince the younger kid to put the handcuffs on himself, and once the boy's hands were firmly bound behind his back... He was fucked. Coral stuffed a gag into his mouth, and then Henley said that when Coral did that, he left He left with the belief that the victim was going to be taken to Dallas and sold to the sex slavering that Coral said he was a part of. Just like the last two victims... Brooks helped abduct. The identity of this young victim is still unknown to this day. Gee, many Christmas. Yeah. Jacked up, man. Mm-hmm. I make a lot of jokes, but this is one sick. These are all three of them. I know. Now, Henley, I can kind of understand. He's not thinking torture. He's thinking, hey, there's going to be literally sold and fucked. Yeah, they're going to be human trafficked, which right. it's torture in it's itself. It's torture in and of itself, but yeah. Coral and Brooks, man, Jesus fucking Christ, when you're selling your own friends, knowing, yeah, knowing These are people you went to school with, you work with. Yeah, yeah. and it's like, hey, I know that you're going to be taking the dirt nap after you've been alive for a few days and been yeah. tortured and repeatedly raped. It's disgusting. Um Approximately one month later, on March 24th, 1972, Brooks, Henley, and Coral ran into 18-year-old Frank Aguirre, A-G-U-I-R-R-E. Henley had actually known Frank prior to this encounter. On this fateful evening, Frank was leaving work uh, at a restaurant on Yale Street when he ran into the three cohorts. (laughs) When Henley saw Frank, he hollered out to him and had him come over to Coral's Chomo van. After the pair talked for a bit, Henley asked Frank if he wanted to go back to Carl's apartment to smoke a little reefer and drink a couple of brewskis. Um, Frank accepted the offer and told them he would follow them to Carl's place in his AMC Rambler. Yeah, now that's a pimp car. Yeah. <laughs> Once they arrived, all four of them had begun began a session of Puff Puff Pass. At some point, Frank saw a pair of handcuffs that Coral had left out on the coffee table. As soon as he picked them up, Coral leapt into action by shoving the boy down into the table and forcing his hands behind his back and slapped the cuffs on him. Um, Later, during Henley's statement to law enforcement, he said that when he asked Frank to go over to Coral's to smoke with them, that's the only thing he expected to happen that night. He claims that he didn't know ahead of time the extent of Coral's intentions for his friend. I don't think he did. It's just, it's, it's, yeah. it's kind of lining up with, he, like I said, he just thought they're, they're, he's getting taken back to Houston and, you know. Yeah, and then and Coral's so. going to take him on to Dallas. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, even if he, you know, I think it was after this that he realized that no matter who he brought over, they were, you know, yeah. toast. <laughs> Gone. Bye-bye. Yeah. Might as well just kiss that one goodbye. Um Let's see here. Henley gave an interview in 2010, and he again said he didn't know what Coral was going to do to Frank that night. He even claimed that after Brooks and Coral had Frank both bound and gagged, he attempted to convince Coral not to sexually assault him and kill him. Um, 
Come on. Hang on. Son of a bitch. Oh, there we go. According to him, Coral refused to comply with his wishes. The older man even informed Henley that the last boy he brought over had endured the sexual assaults and torture prior to being killed. Then Coral informed Henley that he fully intended to put Frank through the same ordeal. Apparently, Henley wasn't too bothered by the older man's statement since he hung around and helped Brooks and Coral bury Frank's body at High Island Beach. See, that's the determining factor. You know, if he would have ran out of there, or even if he would have not ran, but slipped out of there, no, I'm okay with this, and went to the cops and said, look, this is, this is what's happening. This is all fucked up. Yeah. Then they would have said, oh, well, yeah, totes, And I think but. a lot of it is is these two, these were, you know, middle-aged teenagers, and he was an older man giving them attention, you know, and buying them what they wanted. Yeah. I mean, a car for Cronello. But I was on Henley's side up until you said that he hung around and helped bury the body. I and, and obviously, he's going to keep going. Oh, yeah. So now I'm starting to think Henley is uh, um, full of shit. Yeah. Lying little motherfucker. Henley claims that this was the night he realized exactly what Coral was doing. That he was physically and sexually harming each boy before he killed them. Even after finding that out, Henry chose to be an active and willing participant when it came to both abducting and killing the victims that followed. Um, it was about a month after Frank was murdered on April 20th, Henley helped both Brooks and Coral abduct another victim. Um, this one was 17-year-old by the name of Mark Scott. Um, as it turns out, Brooks and Henley both knew Mark very well. And according to statements later, the three of them grabbed Marky forcefully i think it's just supposed to be mark forcefully um were you thinking of marky mark in the no bunch? i had a y in there oh um and he put forth extreme effort in an attempt to fight coral off as coral was trying to secure mark's hands and restrain him the 17 year old took out a knife with the intent of stabbing the three attackers however before he could strike he looked up and saw that henley had a gun fixed on him so when Brooks gave his statement later, he claimed at that point, Mark just gave up. Um, as soon as Mark was restrained, he was strapped to the infamous torture board. And once he was suspended on that, Henley, Brooks, and Coral set about making him suffer. They took their time raping and torturing Mark before he was strangled to death and buried near Frank out at High Island Beach. Gene, yeah, Henley's been lying. He knew... He knew what the fuck was going on all along. Oh, yeah. Because you don't go from, okay, you're just selling him into the sex trade, to, hey, let me rape him with you. Yeah. Oh, now that I know what you're really doing, let me be a part of it. Why didn't you just tell me that in the first place? I'm all for abducting and raping and killing. Yeah. I mean, psh, that's right up my alley. Bullshit. Bull fucking <laughs> shit. You little lying scumbag. Okay. Um... When Coral was able to get Henley to the point of active participation in the whole process, Brooks noticed something. In Brooks' statement to the authorities, he claimed that when Henley participated in the murder, in the murders the three of them committed while Coral was living on Schuler Street, he was especially sadistic. Um, Coral moved from his Schuler Street apartment on June 26th. However, before he packed his boxes and hauled them away, Henley helped him and Brooks abduct and kill two more boys. This time, the victims were Billy Balch and Johnny DeLome. Um, 
Brooke's confession later claimed that both of the young boys were bound and tied to Coral's bed. After that, their fate was sealed. Brooks, Henley, and Coral said about raping and torturing them. I know. All three of these guys are just taking turns. When the yeah, three people- I, have, I, I thought that Henley, honestly, was more of a victim in all of this up until... Up until Frank. Oh, yeah. Up until Frank. And yeah. now I know that he's a little lying cocksucking motherfucker. Yeah. Just a piece of shit. Yeah. And that's what he is. And if you're listening to this, Henley... That's what you usually are. You're sitting there lying to everybody, probably to this day. Yeah. About your whole little story there. You're a liar. Just come right out and be a man and fucking own up to your shit. Yeah. You ain't going to go nowhere. Yeah. You ain't going no fucking place, dude. Just admit that you were an active participant. I mean, shit. What harms are going to do? And You're obviously in there for the you rest like of your life. Obviously, you like you sick fuck. Yeah. I put him right. He, he's in my Hormoka category. Is he? Oh, yeah. Wow. He's over, he's over there freaking lying about it, and her uncle did the same thing. I'm just an innocent victim until they find the tapes, right? And she's already made this deal so she can walk free like the little twat she is. Somebody should run her over. I'm not saying to run her over. I'm just saying hypothetically speaking. Do you know the guy she married was her attorney's brother? I know. Oh. I knew that. I'm just saying, hypothetically speaking, if your foot happens to slip on the gas while she's crossing the road, accidents happen. I'm and I'll saying. give you a reward. <laughs> I'm just saying, accidents freaking happen. <laughs> now, now something will happen to her, and I'm going to fucking get extradited to Canada. And you probably will. Canadian prisoner or some shit. Yeah. So when the three people had their fill of the torture and assault, Brooks <laughs> claims that Henley himself grabbed Billy by the throat and strangled him to death with his bare hands. After killing Billy, Wait Henley a minute, hold shouted, on. Doesn't he have human hands? B-A-R-E. Oh, you said bear hands. I thought he like grew bear hands. Whoa. I got big Because I'm a polar bear. <laughs> you have to do it with the whole thing. Um, then after killing Billy, Henley shouted, hey, Johnny, before he grabbed the gun and put a bullet through Johnny's forehead. The bullet entered the boy's forehead and exited out of his ear. See, it would have been better if he could have looked at him and, and said, here's Johnny. But Shining came in. I know. Was after that. I know. But it would have been way cool if he would have used that. Would it have been way cool? It would have been. Here's no Johnny. Yeah, because wasn't Shining seventy five or something? I'm trying to remember. I've seen it a few Me times. Too. It was. They used the outside of Timberline to film the outside of the oh. hotel. Huh. Cool. Johnny didn't die from the gunshot wound because he began to plead for his life. He um he cried out, Wayne, please don't. That was right before Henley decided to strangle him to death as well. The three murderers then took took both boys out to High Island Beach and buried them in the vicinity of the others. Um, there was one time while Coral was still living on Schuler Street, the three of them brought 19-year-old Billy Riddinger, Riddinger R-I-D-I-N-G-E-R, into the house. They secured the young man to their plywood board before he was sexually assaulted and tortured by Coral. Brooks later said that when Coral was finished, he managed to convince the older man to release Billy. Just let him walk away. Coral agreed, and he let the 19-year-old walk out the front door. Um, then there was apparently another time at the same apartment that when Brooks walked through the door, Henley knocked him unconscious. After Brooks was out cold, Coral tied his young friend to the bed, then proceeded to sexually assault him multiple times before he untied him, releasing him. Um, which I didn't understand why he did that. Because 
Brooks was already a part of it, you know? He was a very active participant. I don't know why he had to, you know. Even though Coral had just treated Brooks like he did his other victims, minus the murder part, the young man still stuck around. He didn't waver in his participation when it came to helping Coral abduct more victims. When Coral left the apartment on Schuler Street, he moved into an apartment located at Westcott Towers. During the summer of 1972, that is where Coral killed two more boys. The first was um, 17-year-old Stephen Sickman. Um, the last time Stephen, Stephen was seen alive was a little before midnight on the evening of July 19th. He had been at a party in Houston Heights when someone saw him leave. After encountering the murderous trio, they beat him on the, in the chest with some kind of blunt object before they strangled him to death. Once he was dead, the three of them took him to the boat shed and buried him with the other corpses there. Around August 21st, almost one month to the date later, 19-year-old Roy Bunton came across Brooks, Henley, and Coral. He was employed at a shoe store in Houston as an assistant, and he left the house that day uh, to walk to work. After Roy was restrained, one of the guys took part of a Turkish towel and shoved it in his mouth and secured it with tape. Roy's cause of death was attributed to the two gunshot wounds in his head. Then he was also taken to the boat shed to be buried with the other bodies. The, the, the other bodies of the boys, these three men had disposed there. Um, here's the kicker. Brixton Henley never mentioned Stephen or Roy when they were listing Coral's victims to the authorities. As a matter of fact, these two young men weren't even identified as victims of this deadly trio until the authorities were able to distinguish a definite link. Um, now, I have a question, and I'm sure everyone is asking the same one. Wouldn't the fact that Roy and Stephen were buried next to each other, I, I mean, next to other known victims of Henley and Coral in the boat shed, wouldn't that automatically make them their victims? No, maybe maybe there's another killer. That's renting the boat shed, too. Yeah, maybe breaks in the boat shed. <laughs> I don't fucking know. That made no sense. You would think. Yeah. Or is it that they knew the boys were victims and they just didn't know how, who they were? I was confused about that part. Um, Excuse me. Yeah. On October 2nd, 1972, Brooks and Henley came across two more teenage boys by the name of Wally J. Simono and Richard Henry. The two were walking back to Richard's house in Houston Heights when they were picked up and driven to Coral's apartment at Westcott Towers. At some point during the evening, Wally was said to have called his mother at home. According to the reports I found when he called home, he was heard shouting, Mama, before the line went dead. Um, after being sexually assaulted and tortured all night, the following morning seemed as if it were a confusing shit show. Apparently, Henley wound up shooting Richard in the mouth by accident. I wasn't quite able to determine where the bullet entered his face, but reports indicated exited through his neck. Um, later that same morning, both Richard and Wally were strangled by the murderous group and then taken to the boat shed and buried. When their bodies were discovered later, it was determined that the two were buried in the same location, right above the remains of James Glass and Danny Yates. Um, in November 72, an acquaintance of Coral and Henley, 18-year-old Willard Branch, was seen hitchhiking along I-69 South. 
Apparently, <laughs> shut up. Apparently, my favorite highway. I hate you. He was trying to thumb a ride for the nearly 260 mile journey from Mount Mount Pleasant to Houston, Texas. Um, I put Mouth Pleasant. Mount. Oh, maybe I need to learn how to spell. Okay. He was he was along this route when he suddenly disappeared into thin air. Um, when Willard's remains were discovered after the boat shed was excavated, the authorities discovered prior to his death, he had been gagged with some sort of cloth. And the autopsy also revealed that before he was buried, his genital area was mutilated when his killer emasculated him. See, we see that a lot, though. Yeah, like, not all the it. time, but most of our killers here have been, like, when it's, like, the same sex, mm-hmm. emasculate mm-hmm. the dude. Craft did it. Oh, yeah. Craft did it kind of a lot. That's just... But Kearney didn't. Do you think that that's because they had some shame with their homosexual acts? Now I got to think about that shit. That's going to keep me awake. I don't know. Maybe. Could just been that they were assholes. That, well, you're probably right there. Um, let's see here. Then on November 15th, 19-year-old Richard Kepner was walking to a local phone booth when he suddenly disappeared. You remember what a phone booth looks like, Scott? He's going to turn into Superman. Yeah. Well, you know, you don't even see phone booths anywhere. You don't. It makes me quite sad. I miss phone booths. Well, they had raised the price on them to, what, 50 cents? Something like that. By I can't remember. By the time remember. they disappeared, that was I haven't. I, I can't even remember the last time I was in a phone booth, honestly. Was it New York? Did you take off your glasses? <laughs> That's right. Captain I was in Metropolis. <laughs> <laughs> That's me, Captain Tabo. <laughs> Anyways. Um... Okay, when he suddenly disappeared. His remains were later discovered when the High Island Beach Body dump site was excavated. After the autopsy was performed, it was determined that he had also been strangled to death by his attacker. Did they emasculate him, though? No. I would like to find out... They didn't emasculate all of them, just a couple. I would like to find out the series of murders, like from the first to the last, as a side project just for me knowing, to see the intervals... Of emasculation. Mm. I have a list of victims on there. Oh, you know, I'll yeah. talk about it later because we got to get through this one here because I'm we're running out of time. Done. Yeah, I'm almost done. Um, let's see here. Um, do do do. Uh, okay. When all was said and done in 1972, from February through November, a minimum of 10 teenage boys ranging in age from 13 to 19 were sexually assaulted, tortured, and murdered by Coral, Henley, and Brooks. I think you said one of them was 20. This is in one year was 10. Oh, gotcha. In okay. the three-year period, it was 28. Oh, that's right. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'm catching up again. Five of the victims had been buried at the High Island Beach site, and the other five were buried underneath the boat shed. Now, Coral moved again on January 20th, 1973, to another residence on Wirt Road, located on, in Houston Spring Branch District. He hadn't been living there two whole weeks before he claimed another life. The victim was 17-year-old Joseph Lyles, an acquaintance of both Coral and Brooks. Joseph lived on Antoine Drive, which happened to be the same street where Brooks was living at the time. Um, Coral only stayed at that address on Wirt Road for about one and a half months before he moved again. 
on March 7th, 1973, when his father moved from the residence at 2020 Lamar Drive in Pasadena, Coral moved in. Um, Coral Brixton Henley didn't murder any victims from February 1st to June 4th of 1973. Now, the reason for this break... What are you doing? It's a net. Oh. The reason for this break in their cycles was attributed to two reasons. The first reason the authorities believed there was a lull in the murder spree was due to Henley relocating for a brief period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently within the first couple months of 1973, Henley decided it would be best if he put some distance between himself and Coral. And although the arrangement would only be temporary, he did move to Mount Pleasant for a period of time before returning to Houston around the middle of the year. Now, the second reason detectives gave for the hiatus was because Coral began suffering from hydrocele after he murdered Joseph in January. For those who are wondering, hydrocele is a buildup of serous fluid or body fluids resembling serum and in a person's body cavity. In this case, Coral had an accumulation of this fluid in his testicles. I kind of figure that's kind of coming with those guys yeah well my son had hydrocele when he was born according to medical journals it's not uncommon for a male child to have this fluid accumulation around their testes at birth however if they do not have a hernia as well the buildup of bodily serum resolves itself without need for treatment before the infant celebrates their first birthday i mean because it happened with my son in coral's case he had what is known as primary hydrocele's uh, which can develop in adult males. Medical professionals believe primary hydrocele is caused when the body's ability to reabsorb the serum fluid is somehow impaired. However, the exact reason for the impairment is still unknown. Okay. Yeah. So could you imagine him? I mean, his nutsack was swelled up. <laughs> Let the punishment fit the crime. Right? Okay. Apparently, by June 1973, Coral's hydrocele had cleared up and Henley had moved back to Houston. From that point forward, the rate at which Coral was murdering increased significantly. We had some catching up to do. Yeah. According to the testimony of both Brooks and Henley later, Coral also increased the level of brutality for each murder astronomically during this time. Um, as a matter of fact, during Henley's testimony, he compared Coral's frequency, acceleration, and the tremendous increase in brutality to being like a, quote, bloodlust. Um he said that it got to a point when he and Brooks instinctively knew when Coral was going to tell them, turn to them and say he needed a new boy. Oh, okay. To do a new boy, excuse me. Um, Henley described Coral's behavior just prior to making the announcement as being very, quote, restless. In this restless state, Coral would practically chain smoke cigarettes and he would start making what appeared to be reflexive movements. Like yeah, it's kind of like me. You're always jittery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you always, yeah. I mean, you don't smoke as much as you did when I first met you. No, I vape more now. I try to. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Apparently, Coral got the urge again around the beginning of June. On June 4th, 1973, Henley and Coral were together when they abducted William Ray Lawrence. The 15-year-old father, the 15 year old's father was the last person to see him alive before he disappeared off 31st Street. William was tortured and sexually assaulted for approximately three days before he was strangled to death and buried over at Lake Sam Rayburn. Um, not even 14 days had passed from the day William was murdered before Coral needed to do another boy. This time, it was 20-year-old Raymond Stanley Blackburn. 
was the abducted victim. After Coral spent some time raping Raymond and subjecting him to torture, the young man was strangled to death and buried alongside William at Lake Sam Rayburn. Um, now, July was a very busy month for them. On July 6, 1973, Henley started taking driving classes in Bel Air, Texas, at Coach's Driving School. That's where he met a kid by the name of Homer Luis Garcia, another 15-year-old boy in his class. On July 7th, after class was let out for the day, Homer called his mother to let her know he was planning to spend the night at a friend's house. By the following day, Homer had been shot and placed inside Coral's bathtub while they waited for him to bleed to death. Then, to dispose of his remains, they took his body out to Lake Sam Rayburn and added his corpse to the collection growing there. Um, Coral only lasted five short days before he had to strike again. On July 12, 1973, they selected 17-year-old John Sellers from Orange County as their next victim. After being sexually assaulted and tortured, John's hands were bound before he was murdered with a bullet. His body was buried in the ever-increasing corpses at the High Island Beach dumping grounds. Um, between July 12th and July 19th, 1973, Brooks and his pregnant girlfriend got married. Um, since he had a new bride and a child on the way, Henley temporarily took on his role with Coral. That's when Coral looked to Henley and made him responsible for procuring new victims to satisfy the older man's sadistic needs. Henley took his new role very seriously and was instrumental in the abductions of the next three victims from July 19th to July 25th, 1973. According to Henley, these three boys were the only victims he helped Coral abduct and murder when Brooks wasn't actively participating. Um, hang on. Now, remember I told you about Billy? Uh-huh. Okay, 17-year-old Billy. One of the three specific victims happened to be 15-year-old Michael Balch, which was Billy's younger brother. Holy shit. Yeah, who had been murdered by the vile trio the previous May. Because um, he was, yeah, he was murdered in May of 72, and the, now they're targeting um, Michael in July of 73. Young Michael's family last saw him alive on July 19th when he left the house to go get his haircut. His remains were later discovered um, were discovered later among the victims at Lake Sam Rayburn. The autopsy had determined he'd been strangled to death before being buried there. The next two victims in this group of three were abducted at the same time on July 25th. Henley was walking down 27th Street with a friend from school and the friend's roommate when they were last seen alive. Henley's friend, 17-year-old Charles Carey Cobble, CCC had left his pregnant wife at home and was hanging out with his 18 year old roommate, Marty Ray Jones, when the two met up with Henley. Later that evening, Charles called his father on the phone in complete hysterics. Charles' call home didn't last very long, but it was long enough for his father to become concerned, especially since Charles was screaming about how he and Marty had been, quote, kidnapped by drug dealers. Um, after being subjected to Coral's ritual of sexual assault and torture. Marty was strangled to death with a cord from Coral's Venetian blinds, and Charles was shot in the head two times with a handgun. Then Henley took both bodies out to the boat shed himself to bury them where they were later discovered. Uh, the last victim murdered in 1973 was 13-year-old James Stanton Dramala, D-R-E-Y-M-A-L-A, on August 3rd. 
this kid from the South Houston area was abducted by both Brooks and Coral, and he was just out. He was just out riding his bicycle through the streets of Pasadena when he seemed to suddenly vanish. Once Brooks and Coral had the young boy in the car, they drove him straight to Coral's place on Lamar Drive. The older man, the older men told James they were just stopping by there to get the empty glass soda bottles they intended to resell. Um, Coral and Brooks managed to get James inside the house. After that, they tied him down on Coral's infamous torture board and proceeded to rape and torture him for a significant period of time. When the two older men had gotten enough of their sadistic pleasure, they grabbed a cord and strangled James to death. His remains were later found buried with the other boys buried in the boat shed. Later, when Brooks was describing James to law enforcement officials, this part made me sad. Um, he said that he was a, quote, small blonde boy. And he also said that he had only spent maybe 45 minutes with the kid before Coral launched his attack. And during that brief period of time, he bought the boy a slice of pizza to eat. That's, That's fucked up. That made me cry. That is yeah. fucked the fuck up. Please tell me this asshole died. Which one? All of them. Oh, well, I can't tell you that. That's the end of my presentation for today. Um, I oh, will finish sh- it up. get the fuck out. Yeah. I hate you. I will finish it up next week. Well, I figure Coral's dead. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe boogers. Maybe it's not. I hate you. No, you don't. Remember, you can send us an email and hate mail for Tammy at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check out the website at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Click on that Amazon link. Help a brother out. Help a brother out. And check out our Patreon page as well. That's another way you can help the show. Yeah. Everything helps. Every little bit helps. Let's see what else we got going on. Um, if you want to do your own podcasting, contact us at admin at Twisted Blue LLC. Pitch your show to us. We probably will work with you. Yeah, uh, well, well, at least contact you back. We're not going to, like, ignore you or anything. Yeah, no. Go, I mean, Get away from here. And even if it's something we don't think could, like, jive with our programming, we can always help you tweak it so it will. Yeah, you help know. you out. It's free yeah. of charge. Don't worry about it. Yeah. All right. Ch- uh, just look for our blogs everywhere because we're, 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 we're international. We're, we're everywhere. <laughs> well, I get tired of listing out all the places that our blogs Mr. are located. Mr. Worldwide. That's right, man. <laughs> hey, I got Notorious P.I.G. on my side. You so. do have Notorious P.I.G. He's yeah. so cute. He's coming to work with me now because the roads aren't iced up. Yeah. <clears throat> I like his little clove feet. And, you know, his he like they, they look like real hooves. Yeah. I, he yeah. sings to me all the time, too. Does he? Oh, yeah. We sing together. Oh, my God. <laughs> this show's copyright 2021 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved, and we will see you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.